You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Modern Art of Education. This is Lecture 8, entitled Reading, Writing, Nature Study, given on August 13, 1923. In the previous lectures, I showed that when children reach the usual age for school, at the transitional change of teeth, all teaching should be given artistically in the form of images. Today I will take those ideas further and show how this method appeals directly to a child's heart and feelings, and how everything develops from this. A few examples will show how writing can arise from the artistic element of painting and drawing. I have already said that if education is to be in harmony with natural human development, children must be taught to write before they learn to read. This is because one's whole being is more active in writing than it is when reading. Writing involves the movement of only one member of the body. But the forces of one's whole being become involved in this movement. When reading, only the head and the intellect are engaged. And in a truly organic form of education, everything must be developed from the qualities and forces of a child's whole nature. We will assume that we have been able to give our students some idea of flowing water. They have learned to imagine waves and flowing water. Now we can direct their attention to the initial sound, the initial letter of the word wave. We turn our attention to the initial letter of descriptive words as we speak them. We show that the water surface as it rises into waves follows this line, and there's a drawing. After making the movement of this line, we ask the children to draw it, thus making a W. Thus we introduce the form of the letter W in writing. The W arose from the picture of a wave. First, children are given mental images that can lead to letters, which they then learn to write. We might have them draw a mouth, for example. Then we introduce them to the first letter of the word mouth. Next, they might draw a fish. Once the basic form is firmly in mind, we go on to the first letter of the word fish. Many letters can be approached in this way, but others will have to be derived somewhat differently. For example, suppose we give the children an imaginative idea of movement and sound of wind. This is the best way for little children, though there are, of course, many possibilities. We describe the rushing wind and let the children imitate its sound and arrive at a form like this. There's a drawing. We can develop most of the consonants by painting the forms of objects, movements, or activities. In the case of the vowels, we must turn instead to gestures, because, because vowels express our inner being. The letter ah contains a sense of wonder and astonishment. Eurythmy is a great help here because it gives us the gestures that truly correspond to feelings. The sounds of the letters I, A, and other vowels 
can be drawn from their corresponding gestures in Eurythmy, since vowels should be derived from the movements that accompany the feeling life of human beings. In this way we can move into the abstract nature of writing from the concrete elements of painting and drawing. We then lead children to begin with the feelings evoked by an image. They thus gain the ability to relate the letters themselves to the soul quality in the feeling. The underlying principle of writing thus arises from the feeling life of the soul. When it comes to reading, we must simply try to get children to recognize, in their heads now, what was already elaborated through their physical forces as a whole. Reading is thus seen as an activity in which the children have already been involved. This is extremely significant. The whole process of development is ruined if children are led immediately into abstraction, if we teach them to do something by giving them purely mental concepts. Healthy growth, on the other hand, is always the result of introducing an activity first, followed by the idea, which develops from the activity. Reading is essentially mental, and if it is taught before writing, children prematurely develop only the head instead of the forces of their whole being. Methods such as these can guide education into an area that embraces the whole human being, the realm of art. This must, in fact, be the goal of all teaching up to the age of about nine and a half. Image, rhythm, measure, these qualities must imbue all our teaching. Everything else is premature. Consequently, before this time, it was impossible to convey anything to children that strongly distinguishes between them and the outer world. It is not until around the ninth or tenth year that children begin to realize they are things apart from the outer world. Hence, when they first come to school, we must make all outer things seem alive. We speak about the plants as living beings, conversing with us and one another in such a way that the children's view of nature and people is full of imagination. Plants, trees, and clouds all speak to children. And at this young age, they must not feel separate from the outer world. In an artistic way, we must give children the feeling that just as they can speak, everything that surrounds them also speaks. During these early years, the more we respond to the needs of children's innermost being, the more we enable them to flow into their environment. We vividly describe plants, animals, and stones, so that articulate spirituality wafts toward them in weaving imaginations. These are the years when the feeling of children's souls must flow into their breathing, blood circulation, and into the whole vascular system indeed into the whole human organism. If we teach in this way, children's feelings will be called on in a way that is appropriate for today. Thus, children develop naturally in body and soul. It benefits children immensely when we develop this element of feeling in writing and then allow a faint echo of the intellect to enter as they rediscover in reading what they already experienced in writing. There is then a gentle accompaniment from the intellect. This is the best way to lead children toward their ninth year. 
Between approximately seven and ten, it is essential for teachers to appeal directly to feeling. Children must receive the various letters into their feelings. This is very important. We unduly harden children's nature, over-strengthen the forces of bones, cartilage, and tendons in relation to the rest of the organism when we teach them to write mechanically, asking them to trace arbitrary curves and lines for the letters, using only the physical mechanism, without calling on the eye as well, EYE. If we call on the eye, which is, of course, connected with the movements of the hand, it will take pleasure in the results of its activity by developing the letters in an artistic way. Thus letters do not arise merely from mechanical movements of the hand. Qualities of the soul are brought into play, and the feeling life develops at an age when it flows best into the physical body with healing power. What you would say if you saw someone sitting with a plate of fish, carefully cutting away the flesh and eating the bones? You would probably be afraid that the person would choke and, in any case, be unable to digest the bones. On another level, that of the soul, this is exactly what happens if we give children dry, abstract ideas instead of living pictures that engage their whole being. Dry, abstract concepts must be used only to support the images that arise in the soul. When we use an imaginative, pictorial method in teaching, as I have described, we orient children's nature so that their concepts will always be flexible. We find that once children reach the age of nine or nine and a half, we can lead them in a beautifully organic way to understand a world where they need to learn how to distinguish between themselves and their environment. If we have devoted enough time to speaking of plants that speak to us, allowing children to look at the plant world and experience it in living pictures, we can introduce something else. They learn this in the best possible way from plants, if we begin to speak of it between the children's ninth and tenth years and gradually carry it further during the tenth and eleventh years. At this age the human organism is ready to inwardly relate to the plant world through ideas. But in an education whose goal is the living development of the human being, the way we speak of the plants must be very different from methods that are used simply because they were used in our own education. It is absolutely meaningless for human life, unless, of course, it's merely a conventional one, to give children plants or flowers just so they can learn the names or the number of stamens and petals. Anything taught to children in this way remains foreign to them. They know only that they are being forced to learn it, and those who teach botany in this way to children of ten or eleven know nothing about the real connections of nature. If we study a plant by itself, preserve it in a herbarium, and then lay it out on a table for study, it is no different than pulling out a hair and observing it. A single hair is nothing. It cannot grow on its own and has no meaning apart from the human head. Its only meaning is simply the fact that it grew on someone's head or on some animal's skin. Real meaning is found only in connections. 
Similarly, a plant has living significance only in its relationship to the earth, to the sun's forces, and to other forces I will speak of now. Thus, when teaching children about a plant, we must consider it only in its relationship to earth and sun. I can sketch only roughly something that you can illustrate through pictures in many of your lessons. Here is the earth. The roots of the plant are intimately connected to the earth. As for plants, the only thought we should awaken in children is that earth and root belong together. And their only thought about blossoms should be that they are drawn from the plant by sunlight. Children are thus led out into the cosmos in a living way. Teachers who have enough inner vitality can tell children at this age about how a plant is placed with life in cosmic existence. First we awaken a feeling of how the substances of earth permeate the root, which struggles to free itself from the earth by sending a shoot upward. The shoot is born from the earth and develops into leaf and flower through the light and warmth of the sun. The sun draws out the blossoms and the earth retains the root. Then we point out, again in a living way, that the moist earth, having a watery nature, works very differently on the root than does dry earth. Roots shrivel in dry soil and come to life and fill with sap in watery earth. Again we explain how the sun's rays, falling straight down on the earth, call forth the flowers of plants such as yellow dandelions, buttercups and roses. But when sunlight falls at a sharper angle, as if stroking the plant, we have plants such as the mauve autumn crocus and so on. Everywhere we can point to living connections between roots and earth and between blossoms and sun. Having thus placed the children's imagination into the cosmos in a lively way, we describe how its growth as a whole is eventually concentrated in the seeds from which new plants will grow. Then one day, to anticipate the future in a way suited to the children, we begin to reveal a truth that is still difficult to speak about openly, because conventional science considers it pure superstition or mystical fantasy. Nevertheless, it is a fact that just as the sun draws the colored blossom out of plant, the moon's forces develop and bring forth the contracting seeds. Thus we place the plant as a living phenomenon into the activities of sun, moon and earth. True, we cannot yet go into the function of those moon forces, because if children were to go home and speak about a connection between seeds and moon forces, scientifically minded friends might prevail upon parents to remove their children from such a school even if they themselves were willing to accept such ideas. In these materialistic times, we have to be a bit reticent on this and many other subjects. I used this extreme example to show you the necessity of developing living ideas drawn from reality and not from things that have no existence in themselves, because in itself a plant has no existence without the sun and the earth. We must now show the children something else. Here is the earth. It bulges out a bit and makes a hill, and the hill is penetrated by the forces of air and sun. It is no longer only earth substance, 
but changes into something between a sappy leaf and a root in the dry earth, a tree trunk. This plant has grown out of the earth and branches also grow. The child realizes that the tree trunk is really the earth, which has sprouted upward. This also gives an idea of the inner relationship between the earth and whatever eventually acquires a woody quality. To bring this home to the children we show how the wood decays, becoming increasingly earthly until it finally becomes dust and thus like the earth itself. Then we explain how sand and stone began with what was once destined to become plant, how the earth is like one huge plant or giant tree out of which the various plants grow like branches. Now we develop an idea that children can understand, that the earth itself is a living being, with plants as an integral part of it. It is very important that children are not given the distorted ideas of modern geology, that the earth consists only of mineral substances and forces. The formative forces of plants are as much a part of the earth as are the mineral forces. So another point of great significance, we avoid speaking about minerals as such. Children are curious about many things, but we find that they are no longer anxious to know what stones are if we give them a living idea of plants as an integral part of the earth, drawn forth from the earth by the sun. Children really have no interest in minerals as such, and it is very beneficial if up to the eleventh or twelfth year they are uninterested in dead mineral substances and instead think of the earth as a living being, like a tree that has already crumbled to dust and from which all the plants grow like so many branches. From this perspective, it is easy to advance to the various plants. For example, I tell the children that the roots of a certain plant are trying to find soil. Its blossoms, remember, are drawn out by the sun. Suppose the roots do not find any soil, but only decaying earth. The result will be that the sun does not trouble itself to draw out the blossoms. Thus we have a plant that fails to find the earth properly. It has no real roots and no real flower, like a fungus or mushroom. We explain how a plant like a fungus, having found no proper soil in the earth, is able to take root where the earth has already become somewhat plant-like, in the plant hill of the tree's trunk. And gray-green lichen, a parasitic plant, appears on the tree. In this way we can draw something from the living earth forces that expresses itself in the various plants. When children have been given living ideas of plant growth, we can move on to survey the earth's face. Yellow flowers abound in certain regions, in others plants are stunted in their growth, and in each case the earth's face is different. Now we come to geography, which if we lead up to it with plants can play a very important role in children's development. We should try to give children an idea of the earth's face by relating the forces active on its surface to the varied plant life in the various regions. Then we develop a living intellect in children, not a dead one. The best age for this is between the ages of nine and twelve. We should give children a view of the interweaving activity on earth, 
whose inner life force produces the myriad forms of plants. Thus we give them living ideas. Ideas must develop, just as a limb does on one's body. A limb must develop in earliest youth. If we were to enclose a hand within an iron glove, it could not grow. Yet it is constantly said that the ideas we give children should be the most definite possible. They should define, and children should always be forming these. But nothing is more harmful to a child than definitions and sharply contoured ideas, because they lack the quality of growth. Human beings must grow as their organism grows, and a child must be given flexible concepts, ideas whose form constantly changes as they mature. If we have a certain idea at the age of forty, it should not merely duplicate something we learned at the age of ten. It should have changed form, just as one's limbs and organism as a whole have changed. We cannot stimulate living ideas in children by giving them so-called science, dead knowledge that frequently teaches us nothing at all. Rather, we give children ideas of what lives in nature. Then their souls develop in a body that grows as nature itself. We do not then go the usual route of education, which plants in children who are engaged in the process of natural development elements of soul life that are dead and unable to grow. We foster living, growing souls in living, growing physical organisms, and this alone serves as true development. We can stimulate real development through a study of plants and their intimate connection with the earth. Children should feel the life of the earth and plant as a unity. Knowledge of the earth should be knowledge of the plant world. First they should be shown how minerals are a residue of life, for a tree decays and becomes dust. At the particular age I am speaking of, we should teach nothing about minerals. Children must first receive concepts about what is alive. This is essential. Just as the world of plants should be related to the earth, and children should learn to think of them as the earth's offspring, the last outward-growing product of earth's living organism, the animal world as a whole, should be related to humankind. Children are thus enabled in a living way to find their own place in nature and in the world. They begin to understand that the plant world belongs to the earth. On the other hand, we teach them that all the animal species in the world represent, in a sense, the path to human development. Plants are related to the earth, animals to humans. This should be our foundation. I can justify this here only as a principle. The actual details of what one teaches to a child of ten to twelve about the animal world must be worked out with true artistic feeling. In a way that is simple, even primitive, we first call the children's attention to human nature. This is possible if there is already an artistic foundation. They will come to understand in a simple way that people have a threefold organization. First we have a head, a hard shell that holds the nervous system and the soft parts within it. The head may be compared with the round earth within the cosmos. 
We do our best to give children concrete, artistic concepts of the head. Then lead them to the second member, the rhythmic system, which includes the organs for breathing and blood circulation. After talking about the artistic cup shape of the skull, which holds the soft parts of the brain, we consider the series of bones that make up the spinal column and the branching ribs. We study the characteristics of the chest and its breathing and circulatory systems. Then we reach the third member, the metabolism and limbs. As organs of movement, the limbs are connected with and maintain the body's metabolism, since their activities regulate the processes of combustion. Limbs and metabolism must be taken together and constitute the third member of the human being. First, then, we establish this human threefold division. If our teaching is imbued with the necessary artistic feeling, and if it is presented in the form of pictures, one can communicate this concept of the threefold human being. Next, we point to the various animal species spread around the world. We begin with the lowest forms, creatures whose soft organic parts are inside and surrounded by shell formations. Strictly speaking, certain lower animal species are no more than protoplasm surrounded by a sheath. We show the children how the human head appears in a primitive form in these lower creatures. Our head has the form of a lower animal, transformed to the highest level of development. The head, and in particular the nervous system, must not be compared to mammals or apes, but only to the lowest forms of animal life. We must go very far back in the Earth's history to the most ancient formations, and there we find animals that appear as a kind of elementary head. We try to explain the lowest animals to children in terms of a primitive head organization. Then we look at somewhat higher animals, fish and similar species. In them the spinal column is especially developed, and we explain that these half-animals are beings in which the human rhythmic system was developed, the other members being stunted. In the lowest animals we find an elementary stage corresponding to the human head. In fish-related species we find an emphasized development of the human system of the chest area. Finally, the system of limbs and metabolism brings us to the higher animals. The limbs are formed in great diversity in the higher animals. The structures of a horse's hoof, a lion's paw, and the webbed feet of a wader all give us a golden opportunity for artistic description. Or, we may compare human limbs to the more extreme development found in apes. In other words, we begin to understand the higher animals by studying the formation of the movement or digestive organs. Predators differ from the ruminant mammals, since the latter have very long intestinal tracts, whereas in predators the intestinal tract is shorter, while the system connecting the circulatory and digestive processes is powerfully developed. A study of the organization of the higher animals immediately shows how extreme its development is compared to the human system of limbs and metabolism. We can provide a concrete image of how the front part of the spine in an animal 
is really head, in quotes. The digestive system as a whole continues into the head. Essentially, an animal's head belongs to the stomach and intestines. In people, on the other hand, what remained, in quotes, pristine, the soft brain and the protective shell of bone, is placed above the limb and metabolic system. The human head is thus raised a stage higher than in the animal, which merely continues the metabolism. Yet in human beings the head goes back to what, in the simplest way, that system provides, soft substance surrounded by a cup-like bony formation. We can also study the jaws of certain animals, showing that they are farthest forward in animals. This is the best way to get a flexible understanding of the head of animals. Human beings emerge as a synthesis of three systems, the head, the chest, and the limbs and metabolism. In each animal there is an exaggerated development of one of these systems. Thus we first consider the lower animals, such as crustaceans, then mammals, such as birds, and, in quotes, chest animals, such as fish, reptiles, and so on, which have a well-developed chest system. We see that the animal kingdom is, in a sense, a human being separated and fanned out over the earth. We relate the world of the plants to the earth and the myriad animal species to the human being, who is, in fact, a synthesis of the entire animal world. Beginning with human, the human body, we give children, in a simple way, an idea of the threefold nature of our being. Going on to animals, we describe the various species and how there is always an exaggerated development of particular organs, whereas in human beings those organs are united as an harmonious whole. Thus exaggerated, specialized development manifests in certain animals with the chest organs, in some the lower intestines, and in others the upper organs of digestion. In many forms of animal life, birds, for example, we find that certain organs transformed, such as those for digestion. We can describe how each animal species represents an extreme development of a human organ system. In a sense, the whole animal world manifests as a human being spread over the earth in diverse forms, with the whole animal kingdom as a synthesis. We can return to human beings once we have clearly described the animal world as a, quote, human being, close quote, who has exaggerated individual organ systems, with one system living one animal species, another system as a different species. This should be done when children approach the twelfth year, for they can then naturally understand that because we carry spirit within us, as human beings we are an artistic synthesis of our separate parts, otherwise reflected in the various animal species. Because we bear our spirit within us, we can harmonize the lower animal organization into a whole. In a complex way, we transform this into the head system, correspondingly fitted into that of the breast, which we also develop so as to harmonize with the rest. We thus bear within ourselves the fish organization, along with the higher animal organization, arranged harmoniously into a whole. 
the separate fragments of the human being, scattered over the world in the realm of the animals, are gathered by spirit into a whole being. We relate the human to the animal realm, but we are lifted above animals because we bear spirit. The purpose of such teaching will be obvious to those who are unbiased. When botany is taught as indicated, it works in the realm of living ideas and places human beings correctly in the world, capable of working and navigating life in an engaged way. And an equally living view of the human relationship to the whole animal world strengthens the will. Naturally, you can see that what I have discussed here in roughly twenty minutes must be developed gradually over a long time. We must accustom children to unite these ideas with their entire nature. Thus these ideas will enter each person's role in the world by strengthening the will. The will grows strong when we realize that by grace of living spirit we develop as a synthesis of the animal kingdom. This helps form the will. The goal of our educational work, therefore, is not merely to provide information about the plants and animals, but to develop character. In other words, children's whole human nature. When we teach about plants, we work toward the proper cultivation of intelligence. And we cultivate volition by teaching about animals. In this way, we help children of 9 to 12 relate to these other creatures of the earth so that through proper intelligence and self-confident will they may find their way properly through the world. Above all, in education, we must see that human beings develop in relation to both intelligence and volition. Out of feeling which we have cultivated in children of seven to nine and a half, we develop intelligence and a strong will. Thinking, feeling and volition are thus harmonized instead of being developed in the usual unnatural way. Everything is rooted in feeling. We must begin with the feelings of children. From their feeling, in relation to the world, we cultivate thinking through an understanding of plants, because the life of the plants never allows dead concepts. Out of feeling, we also develop the will, by leading children to what connects them properly with the animal world, while raising children above them. Thus we work to nurture the appropriate intelligence and a strong volition in human beings. This is in fact our primary purpose in education, because only this can make children fully human, and such development is the goal of all education. The end of Lecture 8